You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, just this morning, within the hour, we talked to retired Coast Guard Admiral Carrie Thomas. She used to be in charge of the 14th District, which covers Hawaii and the Pacific. Thomas is now the CEO of the Coast Guard Mutual Assistance, a relief agency out of Washington, D.C., The organization has set aside $150,000 to help Coast Guard families living in the military housing units affected by the petroleum-contaminated fuel. We've heard about the water crisis displacing Navy, Army, and Air Force families, but Coast Guard members and civilians are affected, too. Here's Thomas. There are uh, about 200 families that are affected by this, and our charity helped with a $600 grant like the other military aid societies helped as well. So I think one of the complicating factors is that there are not only military families, but there are civilian employees who live in the housing as well. So the Coast Guard has responded by providing um, monies for them to be able to eat and get fresh water and those kinds of things. But they haven't figured out how to do the civilian employees that live there and give them those entitlements. So they're, they were working on, on the uh, possibility of being able to do that as well. But we were happy to help both civilian employees and military families as well. It is such a challenge. I, you know, I talked to a couple of spouses this morning, and they were trying to find the silver lining, saying, okay, we'll get a little bit of a staycation. But now with the COVID counts happening here locally, now they're really worried, you know, because they're in a crowded area, and uh, and, and it's difficult. It's a hard, hard situation. I mean, uh, it, it's bad enough if you've got contaminated water, and then when you pile on the um, issues that some of the schools had, I think, there. And uh, when you pile on uh, COVID on top of it, it's a, it's been a rough, rough couple of years. And, and, of course, our Coast Guard men and women, both the civilian employees and the military, were affected by the government shutdown that happened right around this time in 2018 and into 2019. So, you know, it's been a, it's been a rough uh, time for our charity to try and help the Coast Guard. And we're doing all that we can do to help the men and women that are affected by these unusual circumstances as they come up. And we did have this uh, kind of freaky storm, what they call a Kona Low, and I I don't know if any of of your members were affected, but uh, uh, your group did offer some assistance there if there were people that were flooded out. Yeah, for sure. Anytime there's a disaster, whether it's a hurricane or a big storm, when Aniki went through, our charity helps with the cost of the loss. When you lose your power, you're going to lose the food in your fridge, and so we'll will help with up to $1,000. And then if it's worse damage, if your home is affected, we'll help with the, the deductibles up to uh, up to $5,000 in your home deductible. If your vehicle's affected, we'll, we'll help with uh, up to five, $5,000 there as well, up to $3,000 for personal property loss. And so really, really happy to help any one who's in a difficult uh, situation. Anytime there's a disaster, we'll help with food loss, we'll help with vehicle damage, we'll help with home repairs that might be necessary, and any personal property that's that's lost. And uh, we've been, our charity's been around since 1924. We're almost 100 years old, so so proud to be able to help the men and women of the Coast Guard and their families. You know, you have a connection to this area since you were out here, you know, overseeing Hawaii and the Pacific. I don't know what you can share with us just on the, the Coast Guard's needs for, you know, for fuel from Red Hill, because, you know, you, you go out and you do the missions, uh, you know, and help uh, protect the harbors. Fuel is a very, very important part of the marine transportation system for the aircraft, for the small boats. And then, of course, the the ships and the barges that go back and forth between all of the neighbor islands and uh, the goods that come in from overseas as well as uh, from the mainland. Fuel is a very, very important part of being able to make sure that uh, Hawaii stays as resilient as it needs to be. And... uh, you know the marine transportation system is an important is an important part of that, and as is the fuel. And part of your mission involves you know responding to, let's say spills. When you were here, we had the molasses spill yeah. in the harbor, and and that was crazy because we knew those lines were inactive, but there was still product in the line that leaked out. Right, and the Coast Guard's got a uh, a group of specialized first responders to critical issues for all kinds of different things. And during the molasses spill, one of the questions was, is it toxic or not? You know, 
does it trigger the, the need for the use of those specialized skills? But in fact, we found out that the infrastructure was failing and that specialized team was necessary to be able to help. Now, these specialized teams, they come from, there's one in the Pacific, there's one in the Gulf, and one in uh, the uh, Mid-Atlantic. And they deploy all over either to help um, in oil spills or in any kind of hazardous material spills if a rail car goes over in the middle of the Midwest and the EPA needs somebody, they call up the Coast Guard, the specialized team, to uh, to help. How are you viewing you know, our situation here with our water crisis and, and the spills that the Navy is dealing with? Well, we did have a small spill when I was in command there, so it does not surprise me that it's continued to be uh, be problematic. I do know that, like with any response, that the joint force comes together to uh, do what it can do. As as our charities come into uh, all of our charities are coming together to help one another, uh, that we do, and uh, you know, infrastructure needs maintained. It's not uh, inexpensive to maintain infrastructure. And, uh, you know, it's it's just one of the uh, problematic things, you know, bridges and roads and tanks are all, you know, they they get old and they need to be maintained. Doesn't uh, surprise me at all that this is a, a challenge. Anything else you just want to add between the pandemic and this water crisis? It's a tough one. It is a tough one. And, you know, my heart goes out to all the military families that are affected. And uh, I just want you know, everyone to know that, you know, our charity uh, and the other military aid societies are all doing what we can do. So there's a Navy Marine Corps Relief Society. There's uh, the Air Force uh, Aid Society that's helped the Air Force and the Space Force. Uh, there's Army Emergency Relief and, of course, Coast Guard Mutual Assistance. And we can be found at www.cgmahq.org if you'd like to join the fight and help us out. And that was retired Rear Admiral Kerry Thomas, head of the Coast Guard Mutual Assistance, a nonprofit relief society that is providing support to Coast Guard families and some civilians affected by the Red Hill water crisis. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. The recent cyber attacks on three of Honolulu's most critical services should have us on high alert. Federal investigators are on the hunt for those responsible, while the city works to make our bus and handyman system, emergency medical services, and vital board of water supply system less vulnerable to attacks. HPR Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Matthew Chapman, professor of computer science and cybersecurity at the University of Hawaii West Oahu, about what more to expect. Looking at the news cycle this past week alone, three city agencies were impacted by cyber attacks. I want to know, is this an anomaly, or should we expect the frequency of these incidences to increase? I don't think this is an anomaly, and I believe most cybersecurity professionals would agree with me. And I think there's two main reasons. Going back a little bit, we'll throw some history in here. In the 1900s, there was a, a well-known criminal named Willie Sutton. And a reporter asked him why he robbed banks. So his reply was because that's where the money is. So now we're at 2021, um, at least for another couple of weeks, and the money is online. There's that actual currency that's digital, uh, maybe Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, and those are generally difficult to trace. You also have some information stored online that's extremely valuable as well. Perhaps it's research data, um, intellectual property, healthcare records, and there's all of that personal information, name, address, date of birth, social security number, and of course our credit numbers. There's an overwhelming number of databases and file systems containing some of this very valuable information that's stored online that cyber threat actors are interested in, 
And that fact, of course, is not likely to change in the foreseeable future. There's a second reason, um, and that's that there's been a history of increased cyber threat activity over the past few years. So let's think about just this summer. We all watched that ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline. That resulted in a ransom of over $4 million. And then the JBS meatpacking plant, that resulted in a ransom of $11 million. So these are very successful cyber attacks, likely executed by some advanced criminal actors, and they demonstrate how profitable these attacks can be. So I do believe we can expect a continued increase in cyber attacks and continued success by these threat actors. So planning, uh, preparation, redundancy and resiliency, these are all going to be really important when we consider sustaining critical services in Hawaii and really in the country as a whole. That analogy of the bank robber saying that's where the money is makes absolute sense. I think, however, some of our listeners over the past week have reached out to us because when you think of a target like Oahu Transit Services, the way that they have been impacted is they haven't been able to make their reservations if they use Handyvan or perhaps they haven't been able to use the Holocard or track their bus on one of the bus tracking apps. And it's confusing for them to try to figure out what exactly, hypothetically, a hacker or a group of hackers would want to do with that information. Can you clarify that a little bit for our listeners? What, hypothetically, a hacker might be after from information from the servers of OTS? Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, we, I was thinking through that myself as soon as I heard about the Oahu Transit Services attack. So what would a hacker possibly be interested in um, when you're looking at OTS. There's not a lot of technical information publicly available on that cyber attack of the Oahu Transit Services. There seems to be a consensus that this attack has the signs of a ransomware attack. But to my knowledge, there hasn't been any ransom demand. So that's not common practice. Usually the ransom note is presented right after the data is encrypted. And typically it's part of that ransomware code itself. So if we look at some of the categories of cyber threat actors, and these are listed by the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, there's national governments, terrorists, organized crime, and some hackers and activists. So you'd want to consider what's the intent and motivation that these threat actors would have to disable services of OTS. And that's not really clear. Um, this may fall short of interests of something like a terrorist organization or even organized crime if there's not a ransom demand. So without a look at some of the technical data, and we call that indicators of compromise, it's difficult to categorize it. But looking at the attack trend nationwide, there has been an increase in incidents across the transportation sector. So some of those attacks may have links to national government. There is some strategic value in the ability to impact the transportation sector. So activity by a cyber threat associated with maybe a national government would definitely be the most concerning possibility, as similar incidents have been seen, again, in New York. Um, however, it's possible that someone with valid network credentials could have intentionally or unintentionally brought down the servers as well. Oahu Transit Services says that it suspects that it was likely exposed to the cyber attack through an email attachment that was opened by one of its employees. What are some other common points of exposure for these types of attacks? When we look at points of exposure, there's a few common attack techniques. So if I made a quick list, um, that list would include a few words like email, websites, files, patching, passwords, physical access. Um, but let me give you some of, a few specific examples of how some of these cyber threat actors get that initial access into a network. Um, one technique would be to convince someone to select a link in an email. Um, that would lead to a website that has pre-configured malicious code. Also, somebody could select a link in an email that would download tools on your computer for remote access uh, or to steal your login information. Um, there's another technique that's having a victim open an unknown or disguised file and that file would contain some code that will, again, reach out to attack servers on the Internet and download some of those remote tools. 
one of the biggest, at least, network vulnerabilities, and we've seen this before, is that unpatched software. We know that we have this common practice of updating our operating system, of updating our applications, and the timing of that is really important because when a public release of a vulnerability comes out, it was actually just a major one, which was, um, if you've seen, there's an Apache Log4j vulnerability, which just means there's a, a vulnerability in um, web servers that host databases, that kind of thing. When that comes out, that's public information. So the public gets the information, but so do those malicious actors and hackers, and there's kind of a race condition where you want to patch your software as fast as you can um, and in your organization before the threat actors or the hackers are able to exploit that newly published vulnerability. So it's very important to uh, keep that cycle going and patch software as soon as possible. Another one of the major um, say attack vectors is we've heard this a bunch of times. We don't want simple passwords. We don't want to reuse our passwords. But we also want to consider some of the passwords on those default devices or those Internet of Things or IoT devices, you know, those things uh, connected to the Internet in your home, whether you use those light bulbs, uh, thermostats, the door cameras. A lot of those have default passwords in there that, if not changed, um, you can look them up on the Internet and find out what the passwords are to that device. And finally, the last uh, attack vector that's very um, that has been very successful is physical access to the machines. We can't forget about the physical security aspects of, it, of that as well. So back to the bank robber analogy, there's different points of entry. If you're looking at a building, you'll see, okay, the windows, somebody could enter through the window. Somebody could enter through the door. Is there a basement? It's the same kind of thing. You want to reduce the number of entry points so that you've reduced your risk. I like to use the term proactive measures because one of the best practices in system security is to conduct vulnerability assessments and penetration tests periodically on your own network. This proactively finds some of those vulnerabilities and remove them before the cyber threat actor can find them. The second half, employee training is also significant. Um, I saw in the news recently, again, that my, Mark Wong had stressed the importance of all employees remaining vigilant. I couldn't agree to that statement more. The employees are the first line of defense in avoiding a cyber incident. So employee training, cyber security awareness, these are all critical to recognize attack attempts before the network's compromised. And really it's the same thing for your home computers and your smartphone. Then maybe you could, in your capacity as an educator about cybersecurity, could you just rate the average person's understanding of the issue? <laughs> That's tough because there's there's no average person, right? We're all pretty unique and have skills in different areas. But I think as a community, um, our cybersecurity awareness is increasing pretty quickly. But again, we're so intertwined with networking of our services that it's, it's another race condition of pushing our education to a level where we can meet all of the cybersecurity workforce needs. I'll kind of, there was a, a report recently by Microsoft, and they tried to give a number, kind of quantify how, how short are we in cybersecurity professionals in the United States. And that number was a half a million. That's problematic. So most of the time I spend right now and most of my efforts is the development of the cybersecurity workforce right here in Hawaii, because we have amazing raw talent to develop some of the best cybersecurity professionals in the country. So as a state, um, and really as a University of Hawaii system, um, we understand the critical need for the state of Hawaii and for our nation's critical infrastructure, and we're progressing pretty well in creating highly talented cyber professionals. That was cybersecurity expert Matthew Chapman, who spoke with the conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote about the recent cyber attacks affecting critical city services.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with online and in-person courses in art, literature, and health. Virtual open house Sunday, January 2nd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Workers' comp insurance is meant to protect people who get injured on the job. However, not everybody tells their boss if something happens at work, but it might be the best way to protect their job in the future. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a local expert who can explain the ins and outs of the workers' compensation system from the doctor's perspective. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Let HPR be the soundtrack for your holiday festivities with a full lineup of everything from Christmas carols to jazz and lots in between. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org holiday. Sponsored by Corcoran Pacific Properties. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today takes a closer look at the film industry and the taxes collected or not. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So your story is about how, uh, gosh, we're not collecting some taxes that might be owed to us. Yes, that that's uh, basically the upshot here. And uh, this uh, bill that we're writing about, it's going to be discussed in the upcoming session, would try to address uh, what lawmakers and accountants see as a problem uh, when it comes to collecting general excise taxes from companies that actors set up uh, to really manage their business, uh, not just in Hawaii, but all over the country. And so it sounds like uh, the tax director, Isaac Choi, is not leaving any stone unturned. <laughs> That's right, Catherine. So, so the issue seems to be that these companies... Um, Again, an actor sets up the company. The movie production pays the actor's company, uh, which is completely fine. And then, however, the problem comes when the actor's accountant, who might be based on in L.A. or somewhere else, um, p- goes to file tax returns and doesn't realize that Hawaii has this uh, really unusual general excise tax. So the general excise tax, the argument goes, um, is not being paid. Right, and that tax is it's kind of compounded, right? Well, it's a big tax, it, it, and I've spoke to some folks um, at the tax department who said, no, it's not an insignificant amount of money. So we're talking about um, uh, potentially a lot of money based on um, the amount that some of these actors get paid. And, and that's really the upshot here. And, and again, to point something out, this isn't only a problem that actors in the movie business deals with. This, this, this sort of company is used by all sorts of entertainers, professional athletes. So any types of people doing, um, or any of those people doing business here might run into the same problem, the same with corporations. This just happens to be a focus looking at um, this tax incentive for motion pictures. And uh, in your article, you have uh, Isaac Choi talking about, hey, we might be giving away $50 million a year. I mean, that's a lot of money. Well, yes. Well, that's the total amount that the state gives to subsidize the movie business. Uh, mm-hmm. So the state can give up to $50 million a year to, to movie productions and television productions, which are uh, basically checks that the state cuts to reimburse the productions for money they spend. So the amount is 200000 or up to, I'm sorry, 20% for uh, Oahu and 25% for neighbor islands. So if a movie spends a million dollars on Oahu, the state then cuts a check for $200,000 to pay back the movie for what it's spent here. Okay, but basically the idea is, you know, if, if we should be collecting some more money and we're leaving it on the table, we need to do, need to do a better job. Yeah, that's right. And and ultimately, the reason they're looking at this for the movie business in particular is there are other things on the table. So one of the ideas is, hey, we want to extend this program for another um, 
several years so that it doesn't expire in 2025, which is the case now. It would be extended to 2032, which would allow movie productions to um, plan better. And this is this is really important for the industry. The other bigger thing on the table that's not in this bill but really floating around out there is the idea that we lift the cap so it's no longer capped at $50 million, but it could be even more, which on one hand, could bring even more production, more jobs, and fanfare, and whatever exposure to Hawaii. On the other hand, it means more money uh, being paid uh, out of the state coffers. Okay, but the bottom line is we've got to have some good data to go with, right, as we move ahead if they try and pass these bills? Right. So they want to get a handle on, well, what's going on with this unpaid tax, potentially unpaid tax, and they want to get more information. And again, this the, the bigger picture is possibly more incentives for the movies, possibly expanding the uh, length of duration of the program so it doesn't expire in a few years. Okay. All right. Well, uh, lots to chew on there. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out during session. Yes, it will. All right. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking to Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story about the film industry at civilbeat.org. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We're counting down until blast-off for the James Webb Space Telescope. It is the most powerful telescope ever developed, and astronomers are launching it into space on Christmas Eve. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also what we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, thrilled to have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, Stargazer's Saturn will be visible in the west till it sets at around 9 p.m. Jupiter is also visible and sets a little later, around 10 p.m. The moon this week is beginning to wane, and so by week's end, conditions should be great for stargazing. And we've got an exciting update on, I guess what you would probably call one of the major advancements in astronomy, huh? This uh, new space telescope that's going up real soon. It is. It's finally time. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST for short, will be blasting off from Guiana Space Center in Kourou, French Guiana, on December 24th, weather permitting, of course. The spacecraft will be mounted to the top of a European Space Agency Ariane 5 heavy lift rocket, which will propel the observatory into history, one way or the other. Must be some uh, anxiety, tension, nervousness surrounding this for a bunch of people. <laughs> Indeed there is. It's not just astronomers that are nervous, but the engineers and crew that designed, built, and assembled this $9 billion observatory. Everyone will be watching nervously as the primary stage main engines ignite and kick off this historic show. And what's cool about these is sometimes folks don't realize how long something like this has been uh, in, in work and under progress. Explain that. Well, it really has been a lifelong labor of love for many people who have worked on JWST. It began development back in 1996, so that's 25 years of work riding on top of what is basically a glorified firework. <laughs> A multi-generational project, huh? Absolutely. JWST has at least two generations of engineers and scientists that have worked on it, not to mention the next generation of astronomers who will be using it to see what's out there. And they don't install stuff and build it back in 96, right? I mean, because literally all that technology is so ancient compared to now, huh? That's the amazing thing. It's just the developments in technology since they started working on this. That's right. It could have easily been out of date by now, but... These things are designed with that in mind going forward. And the launch is really just the first part of this thing. It'll take a while before we know the thing made it there safely and everything's going to work out, yeah? 
Yeah, it's probably going to be like six months before we get the wow. all clear, which is a really long time. The spacecraft has a long journey ahead of it, followed by a final deployment phase, which is where it unfurls its mirror and its solar shade. However, before we get there, we have to first survive the launch, so fingers crossed. Wow. And then we'll get little updates along the way probably too, right? Does it, like, we'll, we'll find out stuff during that six months? It's not going to be like darkness of information for six months, is it? No, the telescope will be checking in every step of the way and will be monitoring its health very closely. I know someone who will be sharing that information with us. That'll be you, Christopher Phillips. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the offices of the Liliuo Kalani Trust, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com Did you miss the latest edition of The Conversation or Fresh Air? Sometimes you just can't listen to your favorite show when it airs on HPR, but you can listen to it on demand with our free mobile app for your iPhone, iPad, or Android. It even integrates with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, so you can listen hands-free in your car. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. Researchers at the University of Hawaii at Hilo published the results of a study on the impact of local sewage systems on coastal waters off of Puako on Hawaii Island this month. According to the Hawaii Health Department, there are nearly 50,000 cesspools on the Big Island, with tens of thousands of those posing a risk to water resources, where they could have significant impact on the health of Hawaii's reefs, visitors, and residents. HPR's Russell Subiano tells us more. Puoko is a tiny community that lies along a two-and-a-half-mile stretch of road running along the South Kohala coast, with half the homes built right up against the shoreline. It started as a small fishing village built on the basalt rock of an old lava flow that reached the ocean. Several underground springs feed the brackish ponds in the area and flow underground to rise up in the ocean. The village grew into a small shipping port after the arrival of sugar plantations in the late 1800s. But it wasn't until the 1950s that the original 163 house lots were developed. I grew up on the Big Island, and in the 80s, I remember it being home to a mixture of Hawaiians, surfers, and hippies living in little plantation-style shacks. But toward the end of the decade and into the early 90s, as the demand for beachfront property skyrocketed, I saw more of the old shacks raised and replaced with luxury homes. With the change came increased concern from residents on how their wastewater was impacting the shoreline ecosystem. We've all noticed that the reef is changing. We used to see more fish, and I've noticed more algae, and I'm in the water surfing and snorkeling almost every day. That's Mike O'Toole, the president of the Puoko Community Association. He and his family have been Puoko residents for nearly 30 years. And then the universities began to come here. Now, I'm not so sure about when that was, but we've had um, scientists here from the University of Hawaii, you know, Yale, I think the Nature Conservancy, uh, Seattle Aquarium, uh, and there's others. And I, I think that we were, there was just a, a amount of concern uh, about that. So I, I just, you know, a bit of change, I guess, is what we were noticing. And then I think some of that was brought to our attention by some of these other universities that were doing studies. The most recent study of the Puoko coastline was led by two University of Hawaii at Hilo researchers, Stephen Colbert, the chair of the Marine Science Department, and Tracy Wigner, the director of the Tropical Conservation, Biology, and Environmental Sciences graduate program. I led the dye tracer studies where we were trying to identify exactly once sewage goes into a cesspool or a septic tank, to identify where it's coming out at the shoreline, how fast it's getting there, how diluted it is. And so we, we did over a few years studies with cesspools, septic tanks, and ATU units as well. And one of the things we found is that almost every time 
We found where the dye came out at the shoreline. It's typically one or two springs right at the shoreline where the, the, the sewage from a home was coming out. In some homes, when sewage would go into the cesspool at high tide, it would come out at the shoreline at low tide. So about six hours later, it was that fast for the sewage to reach the shoreline. And then we also looked at, at the differences in the water quality between cesspools and septic tanks. There was no difference in how fast the water took to reach the shoreline from those different sources. And the water quality at those different points was, was similar. Real quick, let me just make sure I got this straight. So if someone went to the bathroom, they flushed the toilet, that water that goes from the toilet into the septic tank or the cesspool, that water would then seep into the groundwater, get into the springs that, that I know naturally flow into the ocean there at Puoco. And there's, a, there's many homes that have ponds and, and springs on their property. And then that, that sewage water would then surface six hours and I think your study said up to 10 days as well, right? That's that, right. Okay. Yep. So for the homes that are across the street, if they're in a little bit more hard rock, if they're at a little bit higher elevation, mm -hmm. all those things contribute to slow down that flow to the shoreline and, and make for longer travel times. Did you want to add something, Tracy? I was just going to say that I focused on the water quality and our first study back in 2014, the community asked us to to, turn, to determine if there was sewage present in their near shore waters. And from that work, we found out that there was. And so the next question that resulted, well, they wanted to know, is it from our community or is it from the Waikoloa village community that's just up the hill? Or is it from the resort to the north, which is Mauna Kea and Hapuna? Or is it from the resorts to the south, which is the Manalani? So that's what this project really tried to pinned down is where is that wastewater entering into the water table. And so we did all different kinds of measurements from fecal indicator, bacteria, nutrients. We looked at some different isotopes and what we found and they all agreed was that the main place that the wastewater was entering into the water table was at the Pulco community. There were smaller contributions coming down the hill, but not as much as what was entering right within the community itself. So what do Puoko residents do now? The significant impact to Hawaii's aquifer and aquatic environments from the continued use of antiquated sewage disposal technology like cesspools was the reason the state of Hawaii passed Act 125 in 2017. The law requires the replacement of all cesspools by 2050. But in addition to cesspools, Puoko residents also utilize septic tanks and ATUs, aerobic treatment units, as part of their sewage management strategy. In addition to confirming sewage seeping into ocean waters off Puoko, the recent UH Hilo study also made a recommendation. Really, a, a on-site sewage treatment plant is the best solution for this community. On-site, like septic tanks, don't work as well in this environment because there's no soil. It's just very, just fractured basalt rock that the water just pours through so easily to contaminate the groundwater and then our shoreline. Being able to simply remove that from the system to get it treated at a treatment plant is the best way to improve the water quality for the shoreline, both for human health as well as for ecosystem health. Another important component to the whole story is the role of the Coral Reef Alliance. They were with us at the very beginning and they were the ones who pulled the community together to really get everybody on the same page and for the community to decide what they wanted to do. So early on, they did have an engineering report that was done, which looked at three different scenarios. One was removing cesspools and every home getting an an, an aerobic treatment unit, or extending the wastewater treatment line from the Manalani up to Puoko, or building their own plant. And they decided, you know, and it, it took a few years to get the majority on the same page, was that they wanted to do a wastewater treatment plant because they can make the decisions themselves on the level of treatment that they want. And so they want to do the highest level possible which would include nutrient removal, 
and then using the water to do irrigation. So there shouldn't be any anything being injected into the water table if they're able to go through with that type of plant. Is there anything else, any other points that you want the public to understand? Um, I'll point out that the, uh, the state of Hawaii and the county have now invested in putting in a sewage treatment plant in the area and are beginning to work on plans for that. Um, so it's great to see that progress coming out of this type of research. Puako Community Association President Michael Toole says as more information has come in over the years, he and the majority of his neighbors agree that the best solution is for Puako to have its own wastewater treatment facility. We know that, that the county and the state have, uh, that they're helping work with us. I mean, they've been very positive and supportive. And we know that the state gave the county some money and that they're working on matching funds and, and that's to move this forward. I also, I think, and I think all of us, if you're realistic, you understand counties, state governments, not, they don't move quickly. So when it could be completed, I mean, we just hope it gets started, that we, that they realize, you know, that we're going to have to do something and we begin. So if it, if it were done and completed, we had a wastewater system here in 10 years, I'd be happy. Okay. But you, we just can't give up. I guess that's the biggest point part. We just can't you know, sit by. And, and of course, Hawaii has tons of oceanfront communities. And, you know, we hope that, that, you know, this serves as a bit of a model, an example, so that this can be resolved because, you know, the, the oceans uh, in, all around the world are important, but they're also very important to all of us that live here. That was Puoco Community Association President Mike O'Toole and UH Hilo researcher Stephen Colbert and Tracy Wigner talking with HPR's Russell Sabiano. For a link to the results of the recently published uh, Hilo survey, go to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Waimea Valley on the north shore of Oahu, a botanical garden and cultural site featuring La Ohana Day for Kama'aina and military every third Sunday of the month. WaimeaValley.net. The federal government hasn't updated the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act in 20 years. Meanwhile, the entire digital world has become fully integrated into children's lives, whether families want it or not. The time for self-policing and self-regulation is over. Some of the big tech companies have said, trust us, but the trust is gone. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. If you're looking for a gift book to share with Keiki this holiday season, we highlight one written by an author from Molokai. Lavinia Courier lives on the Friendly Isle and decided she had to do something after watching plastic debris build up over the years on the beaches of her island home. The book is called No More Plastic in the Ocean. It's a charming little story about an octopus who got fed up with living with rubbish in his home. Curry explains how the children's book came to be. Well, it, it came to be, Catherine, just because walking on the beach in Molokai as time went on, especially in the last 10 years, I began to see more and more plastic and fewer and fewer shells. And then with children, I, they saw me picking up plastic and they started bringing me pieces of plastic. And I thought, oh dear, do we really want our children to be spending their time picking up our rubbish from you know, the, the ruins of our, our time? And I thought, have to do something about this. And so we organized cleanups with sustainable coastlines and Surfrider and Nature Conservancy and where we live on the East End, we did quite extensive cleanups. And then I thought, well, we need to talk to children about this. And what better way to talk to children than through children's books and images and friendly images of the animals in the ocean, the marine animals, and what they feel about this, having all this rubbish being thrown into their water. So that's how it came about. 
I thought it was such an adorable story, you know, and I'm going to read from the book here. Aloha, I am he'e. I live on the ocean floor, but it's no fun here for my friends and me anymore. Plenty plastic opala every day. People dump it in the water and flush it out the pipes. It chokes us, tangles, breaks and mangles, and never goes away. And the pictures are, are fabulous, you know. <laughs> Talk about your artist. So Molly Ginther was working on, on Molokai when I met her and actually gardening, but she works often. Um, she goes to Palmyra. She loves the ocean. And she did two other books which were about water. One was about the color blue getting over everything in the world in a kind of watery way. And then she did a book about an Alaska fisherwoman, Alaska fishing boat that was was captained by a mother and her daughter. Both were were lovely, and she's just so talented. And she sent these pictures in from Palmyra, which was oh. amazing because the, there was no plane and no paper, and the paper, when she got it, turned into mush because it was so humid. So it was kind of um, amazing that she managed to do this project from Palmyra very, very quickly. Well, I love how the little octopus, you know, just you know, has it in his brain that we got to do something because their ocean home is just being trashed. And I love the concept of them stringing up lay of plastic and then having the birds distribute it on land. And we tried as much as possible to show that the animals have an intention and they're trying to help people understand what the effect of all this is. And children, of course, trust animals and they trust nature, and I think, implicitly. So um, it's a difficult thing because when you're talking about a serious subject, you don't want children to be scared or feel overly responsible, but you want them to be aware and, and in a friendly way, um, be on the lookout. In your book, there's a line, if there is no ocean, there is no us, mm. right? So we have to malama the waters and malama our home. And I love how you work those Hawaiian values into the story. Well, I think the Hawaiian values are more relevant than ever. And I think on islands, we feel these things faster and more dramatically than, than the mainland feels them because we see the rubbish coming from Asia and our own rubbish and... I think we're very connected to the ocean, and people on Molokai gain a lot of their protein from the ocean, and they know that if the ocean dies, they die. So it's it's real to us, I think, on the islands in a way that perhaps people in the mainland don't don't feel it. So, what type of plastics are you seeing wash up on uh, uh, on the beaches there? A lot of fishing boat plastic, huge nets, one net in Halava Valley, so big. The Nature Conservancy had to wait for an industrial helicopter to come and lift it, even when it was cut into pieces. It was like a mountain of plastic net and a lot of crates and and, um, fishing rubbish. Also, we see, you know, toothbrushes and toys and um, people's plastic bottles and so on. But I think the main weight of it is um, fishing plastic. And on the North Shore, there's tons of it that still is not collected because of the difficulty of getting there. But there is an effort once a year to pick up the rubbish and have it helicoptered out. But we really need to get to the source of it, stop it from being dumped. Right, and and not use maybe so much plastic. Right, yep. And I've seen on a lot of the beaches here on Oahu uh, tiny bits of, of plastic just, that's just been broken down. And that's really spooky because you think it's you know, sand and, and, and pebbles, and it's not. That's extraordinary, Catherine. There's so much microplastic, both in freshwater and on the beach, that they've even found it in the amniotic fluid of, of pregnant women, which is really extraordinary. It's everywhere. And for animals, I think the microplastic is more dangerous than the big plastic, even though the turtles do get stuck in plastic the way that Molly illustrated the, the, the book. But um, I think the microplastic, in a way, is more dangerous for them because they ingest it it's in their tissues. I think what what we wanted to convey in, in this book is that there's still time to turn this around. As you say, we have to stop it at its source, and we have to take responsibility of our own environment. But there is time still to make it beautiful again, and I think that's what we really wanted to convey, that there's hope. Well, um, on the final page of your book... 
you know, you actually list a lot of the groups that are active on this plastics issue. There are wonderful groups on all the, on each island, and there are people making so much effort to the Malama, and, and it really is having an effect. But on some of the coastlines, such as the north shore of Molokai, it requires government help and big helicopters and boats to have an impact. It's not always that you could just go on a beach and and pick things up. But I think many people are aware of this problem and trying their best to do something. There's also a bill in the U.S. Congress right now called Break Free from Plastics that's languishing, but people should know that they should write their congresspeople and have that passed so that we can do something at the source. Recently, we did a thing with an artist who was trying to draw awareness to this problem of uh, plastic pollution in the ocean. And she did an art piece up at the University of Hawaii at Manoa out of marine debris collected on these, you know, trips, whether it's 808 or Surf Rider, Sustainable Coastlines, all these groups. But yeah, just lots of people out there who just feel passionate about keeping our oceans clean and, and trying to, uh, you know, draw attention to this, uh, to the plight of our marine life. And I think many children will appreciate it if, if they don't have to be garbage pickers as they grow up. And, or become so accustomed to it that they won't even know what a pristine beach looks like. Well, so your book is out now. Where can people buy it? So they can buy it at Beautiful Books, Nemea, um, and they can buy it from Mutual Publishing in Kaimuki. I think the store is open online and also from the store at Puahuku on Molokai. I am hoping that we'll have a copy in all the libraries there you go. so that children can take it out for free. That was Lavinia Courier, author of the book No More Plastic in the Ocean, just released by Mutual Publishing. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we get the story behind a new art piece that has found a home in the new car rental facility at the Honolulu Airport. And a reminder, all of our shows are archived, so you can listen back, find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.